Good afternoon or evening. Um, this is Mark, and uh, welcome to another uh, conversation, uh, which is not happening in the Dissect Podcast Studio today. I'm actually um, in a hotel room and I've got the mobile kit with me, and I'm sitting with uh, Alex Hutchinson, who um, someone who I've been following for uh, some time. Uh, m- most recently, he's published a book which is titled Endure. Uh, mind, body, and the curiously elastic limits of human performance, which is a topic um, near and dear to me, uh, not simply because it has endure in the title, but uh, um, but because many of the topics that are covered and 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 the research that was done was stuff that I have um, s- sort of uh, seen or visited in, in in the past. So some of these th- things have have come up, and and uh, the, the book itself is remarkable. Um, uh, not um, only for the vast and uh, deep research uh, that was done to, to put all a lot of these ideas together, but uh, uh, just for me to, um, I, I I kind of felt validated sometimes <laughs> reading it. So, uh, Alex, um, welcome, and uh, let's I don't know, kind of get kind of get started. The the way this. Um, uh, the, the the idea of actually I, I, actually, I think I had your name on the whiteboard as someone that I wanted to speak with, um, but before uh, the, the the book came out, partially because um, yeah, just seeing from the the the, the, the outside, there was uh, you had had a blog for a, for a long time and covered a variety of quite, I mean, anything sort of fitness. Yeah. So, so yeah, please. For, for, first of all, Mark, thanks so much for having me and for making this happen. This is this is awesome, and I've been really looking forward to it. And and uh, you know, here we are in a in a hotel room in Santa Fe. Uh, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's it's great when the world conspires to to make fun things happen. But uh, yeah, the, the history of the the blog is that I I started writing a a, a blog called Sweat Science in about two thousand nine, and it was a or eight maybe. It was a WordPress blog, just me. Uh, as a freelance journalist saying, well, no one's going to want to read this stuff, but I want to write about the science of, yeah, like in answer to your question, fitness, uh, mainly endurance. I'm a runner by background, but but I'm interested in the, the, the concept of endurance. And I'm also interested in health. I want to live forever. So that's that was the sort of founding principle of writing about the science. And it has kind of existed in one form or another since then. I, I feel like if I'm you know, my memory serves in some way. I feel like the, that we may have had an exchange in the comments section of the blog um, regarding, it, it may have been a strength training for endurance or it could have been a CrossFit topic or something at one point. Um, but anyway, s- since that time, which is, you know, that is what, eight, nine years. It's close to a decade, yeah. Um, that uh, I've, I've been aware of, of, of what you've been doing. And, and so when I saw the book uh, and kind of, page through i like this is um this uh, having written and failed to write some books um i looked at it and i thought okay this is two years right here close (laughs) a a, a dramatic underestimate (laughs) no 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 no, seriously it's um 
well, it was a lifetime to, to start it, with the, yes. to, to start with the cliche. Yes. Um, the, the first, so I looked back through my emails at one point trying to figure out when I started sort of chasing this whale. And I could, at least in 2009, I was emailing Tim Noakes and others saying, I'm writing a book about endurance. It's going to be the big book. Can I come and visit your lab? And, and it's, it's a little misleading in that. So I was, I was increasingly making my living writing in, journalism about the science of endurance but it was a very conscious focus and directed journalism where i was like i want to go to see tim noakes's lab in cape town i'm going to convince a magazine to send me there and i'll write about it okay but, but i'll also you know any good magazine story 90 percent of what you gather is left on the floor and, and you and you know there's always great nuggets that don't fit in the story uh, or context or just and and even the stuff that is in the story it's like you, you can still that's still a brick to, to put in in yeah. in this big thing so I, i've been on this case since you know two th- this is what i wanted to do since 2009 and it evolved in 2009 i thought it was going to be a book about basically tim noakes upending the world of exercise physiology and when i got into it i realized the story is more complicated and and in in that sense like going to to noakes so it, up ending the science of this, if you will, um, is that in reference? Because uh, that would be reference to you know the thesis put forth in *Lore of Running*. Um, I'm guessing because the waterlogged book had not, yeah, was I, still a couple of years away. Waterlogged was in the future, but he so in 1996 he gave a speech at the American College of Sports Medicine uh, meeting where he basically suggested that 20th century physiology was great but had missed something really really important called the brain and um (laughs) you know for a while it was just kind of uh he he was kind of banging away at this in an abstract way but he started to formulate a theory which became known as the central governor model yes the idea that uh you know to put it simply that when you reach your limits it's not your legs that limit you or whatever your arms it's your muscle deciding i mean your brain deciding that shouldn't go on and that's a nice it's a very attractive narrative to runners or to endurance athletes who are like trying to understand why their performance is as mysterious it is it's also an easy one to sell in an article you know what i mean like it's sure it's a very simple narrative and i thought it was going to be a great book but it's just unfortunately things turned out to be a little more complicated and there's different theories and there's you know so so all of a sudden what i thought was going to be two years as you say ended up uh being a lot longer in the research stage and eventually me realizing that there is no end point. We're not going to have all the answers. So at some point I just need to write the book and that's what I did. And, and, and sort of make an arbitrary decision that, okay, I'm stopping here and I'll, I'll write it and then, and, and, and it will be what it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and be open with the idea that, you know, we don't have all the answers and, and, you know, like the, there's a, there's a real tension in, uh, you know, in any form of journalism, especially journalism that sort of borders on service journalism, where you're trying to tell people what to do, mm-hmm. that you want to wrap things up with a nice, tidy bow and say, this is how it works, and therefore, this is what you should do. And I, I, I'm not strong enough to completely resist that. I mean, that's, that's part of what I do. But, um, but in the book, I tried as hard as I could to, to just acknowledge when we don't know the answer. And, it, it, you know, it's, there's a lot of chapters, like things like hydration and stuff, where you get to the end and, my editor would be like, I'm not quite sure what you're saying. And, and, and I'm like, yeah, that's correct. You're not quite sure what I'm saying. You join the club. Because there are a number of people who I've spoken with trying to come up with a sort of a consensus on this, and they're not clear on, or, or yeah, they disagree. Yeah, yeah there's, there, there's disagreement. And you know what? Disagreement isn't the, like, 
I, I'm willing to look at disagreement and say, yeah, but your case is way stronger than your case, so I don't care that there's disagreement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to convey what I think is the, the correct view. But there's also lots of cases where it's like, yeah, we don't know. The evidence isn't really strong enough either way. I might kind of lean towards a view. But, I mean, hydration is a great example of that where it's like, I don't think uh, saying only drink when you're, when you're thirsty and that's fine is necess- is, it, that's not good enough if you're running a marathon in Texas, and there's a lot of other cases where it's not good enough to optimize performance. At the same time, the, if you're you know, 0.5% dehydrated, you, you, you know, you're, you're losing cognitive and physical function. Yes. I don't think that's a, a, the full story either, but that doesn't lend itself to an easy rule of thumb because I'm not neither of the con- convenient rules of thumb, like drink to thirst or drink to replace sweat losses. Neither of them work, and so you have to have a rule for like every possible situation, and that, that, that's not possible. It, it's 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 a fascinating. Um, I mean, for me, the hydration thing is is quite interesting because when um, when we're in the mountains, you know, the, the, the water is pretty much the heaviest thing that we would carry, uh, and so it, we would want to limit it. But then, you know, reading this and that and the other thing, um, so I perpetuated in, in extreme alpinism, which came out in 1999, I think. Um, I perpetuated the. Um, 600 to 1200 milliliters an hour, you know, myth. I w- and I, and I, and, and the only reason that 600 made it into the book is because I just couldn't, um, I, because I couldn't like, like, because we never obeyed, you know, a, th- you know, a liter to 1200 milliliters an hour rule, uh, um, in the mountains because we, we simply couldn't. So e- even if it was ideal, um, I was, ser- you know, kind of searching around at, at our behavior. Um, but the, but the idea that the, okay, that, that number came from, you know, after reading waterlogged in, uh, it must've been 2012 because we were in, uh, I was on a job in Bulgaria when Michael and I read that and it, and, and it changed, you know, what we were teaching in our, our, our seminars. But, um, uh, because I mean, at the time in the late nineties, I wasn't suspicious. I, and, and so, okay, if this was, if the ideal was 1200 milliliters per hour and we were only, you know, in a three-hour block of time or four-hour block of time, getting that, you know, or or maybe six hundred an hour or four hundred an hour or something, um, and, and and the trade-off was okay. At this level of dehydration, there's you know this loss of muscle, you know, contractility, um, or that there's you know reduced cognitive function. I'm like, well. Okay, but it's still what we're doing because we can't obey these rules, and it's still better than the alternative of of carrying a, like a cooler on your back. Um, yes, and, and you know, yeah. So exactly what you say is is that it may well be that a thousand to twelve hundred milliliters an hour is optimal in some very narrow sense of the word. If there is no such thing as having a full stomach, uh, and if if magically water would appear in your mouth whenever you were thirsty. But neither of those things are, are true. So, yeah, you have to be real. And it's like same, you, your experience is the same as mine. Like when I look back, I started writing about sports science in sort of 2006-ish. And I wrote, and through, you know, 2008, 2009, you look, you know, I'm, I'm towing the conventional line on hydration. And it, but, but meantime, I, you know, I, I would never dream of taking water with me if I was going out for a run any less than two hours. Like there's, there's no point to that and I never felt any need to and so the, the the sort of do as I say but not as I do thing I think lasted for a while but once we like you once once I looked at the research it's like okay what I've been doing actually makes more sense 
where we naturally, if you're sort of a thinking person or or whatever, you, we're going to naturally fall on these things that that uh, resonate either you know temperament wise or or uh, the, the activity and the time domain of that activity and that sort of thing. It, um, so it was it, it was nice when the. Uh, the, the waterlogged book came out just from, from my perspective, partially because it, some people who needed to be thrown under a bus got <laughs> that bus came. <laughs> and it is a powerful bus. I mean, Noakes is a very controversial figure on many different fronts. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if you have someone you want to be run over by a bus and Noakes is that bus, it's pretty satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> did you um so I, I will make the assumption that you you went to cape town and spent some time there um in a um sort of a fellowship sort of way or were you doing no, some work no it was i, I arranged uh, a a story that was initially supposed to run in 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 outside Meg. i mean look here's here's the here's the full uh for anyone interested in the the life of freelance journalism here, here's how it worked I really wanted to go to Cape Town and, and see, see Noakes. Um, I convinced Outside Magazine that this would be a good story, but they, you know, I was a relatively unknown guy. They, they weren't, you know, throwing money around. So I said, look, if you, I'll get myself to South Africa. I'll pay my own plane ticket to South Africa because I, you know, in my head I had a book that was, you know, that, that was worth investing some in. And if you'll pay, you know, my food and, and a and b while I'm there, and I went to, uh, to to watch the Comrades Ultramarathon because okay. I thought that would give some narrative thrust to like, because Noakes had done a lot of research at, at, at Comrades. And so I could, there was an American runner, Josh Cox, who was running it for the first time that year. And I thought he was, he had just set the American 50K record. And if he could contend for the win at Comrades, I could talk about the limits of endurance. He could be my sort of narrative thread getting to the end of Comrades. And then I would go spend a week in Cape Town hanging out with Noakes and with his postdocs and PhD students just hanging out at the lab seeing all the cool stuff they did sitting in on their meetings and that's that's more or less what happened um just to to, to prevent this if, if 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 in any way that sounds you know thrilling and exciting and glamorous let me say that the denouement which was that Josh Cox got diarrhea about 5k into the race and walked half of it so immediately my my the narrative of my story was out the window it's gone, like, yeah. you know <laughs> as far as i was concerned if he succeeded it was a great story because it's a success if he failed it was a great story because then he's coming up against the limits of then you know the non-negotiable limits of endurance but if he's crapping his pants that's just not you know that that's, that's not, not the good story. Yeah, right yeah, there, yeah. yeah that doesn't work <laughs> and so you know i went over to i still went over to cape town and it was it was great and really interesting to you know I, the first day i got there i sat down with noakes and we had a four-hour chat and after about three hours I was like oh, oh do you want to break for lunch and he said oh no no I don't eat lunch but um if you want to stop you're welcome to and I was like no no, no that's fine we'll keep talking because it was great because he's a he's a you know, amazing storyteller and a really you know ins insightful guy but I was starving <laughs> and uh um and that story never ran in outside magazine I wrote uh four different versions of it and it just didn't uh for you know reasons that we don't need to excavate too deeply it yeah. it, it uh it it got killed and and just in the spirit of full rambling i'll say that uh that december i was in nepal uh trekking with my wife in the you know in the everest region we did a, a 21 day route 
uh, going over three high passes. Neat. And it was, a, you know, one of the greatest experiences of my life. And about two weeks in, we were looping back and passed through. Maybe we passed by Everest Base Camp or something. It was in mid-December, so nobody was around. But there was some some little lodge that had a satellite connection. And I was like, maybe I'll just check my email. And I, uh, sure enough, there was an email from my editor saying, you know, oh, this draft isn't going to work either. You know, have you considered doing X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, I did X, Y, and Z in the first draft, you idiot. <laughs> and, and so I spent the rest of the last week of this amazing hike through Nepal staring at the, my toes and composing my irate email. And my wife was like, I hope you learn your lesson. Don't check Don't. your goddamn email when you're on vacation. And I've tried to remember that since because it was, a, you know, the, the worst self-inflicted wound of my uh, vacation career. That... All right. So, so that's the story of going to Cape Town. That's the, that's the full, <laughs> with all digressions included. It's, um, it, and for the book, did you reconnect with Noakes a little bit and, and do some more in-depth stuff, or is a lot of the... Uh, uh, a lot of it is actually from, like, you know, and obviously it's a bit dated because that's 2010, but a, a lot of it is from that, a, a lot of the stories, because a lot of what I wanted from him is where do these ideas come from. Yes. Um, and he's kind of moved out of that debate. Um to some extent, he's moved on to to uh, the, the the diet debate, and, okay. and doesn't really isn't really doing a lot of research on the whole sort of endurance thing directly. But I, I, I reconnected with him and I actually sent him the chapter I wrote on the central governor. I tried to have each chapter of the book read by someone, well, read by people who who were described in it to some extent, or, or by and, and the most controversial ones by you know a, a third party expert or something, just by someone who basically I knew some of the stuff I wrote in the book would, would not be pleasing to some people okay. I wrote about. And I decided, look, if they're going to be mad at me, um, I might as well have them mad at me before the book comes out. Cause sometimes they're going to be right. And if, if I've, if I've done, if I've written something that's, that's not correct, then I want to get it right. If, if they tell me they're mad at me and I should change X, Y, and Z and I don't agree, I won't change it. So I had to rely yeah. on the fact that I was going to have a stiff enough back. But so, so, you know, uh, Noakes read that that chapter and he had a couple of, well, this is another good story. He had two two comments. One of them was just related to the lawsuit or the the disciplinary hearings he had where he was accused of giving advice to uh, a breastfeeding mother to to uh, wean onto a low carb high fat diet and he was they tried to take away his medical license and I had phrased that as he gave advice to breastfeeding mothers and he said it's very important to or to, a, to a breastfeeding mother and he said it's very important to specify that it's it's to, it was to mothers in general, not to one person, because that's a medical advice issue. And I was like, fair enough, I, I'll change that. Okay. And the other thing, I had a quote from Carl Foster, who's a very prominent uh, exercise scientist uh, in Wisconsin, saying, uh, you know, Noakes is amazing. He has these fantastic ideas. The only problem is that he always comes out and s instead of saying, look, I've got a great new idea, he says, everybody else is wrong. And, uh, and Noakes clarified, he said, oh, I, I never say any, everybody else is wrong. I think that, but I don't say it. So I was like, that's dynamite. I'll just put that right in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that is... Uh, uh, I actually wanted to ask, just because we've been talking about, you know, uh, heavily about Noakes, there was a, a book that I read. It, it was... Um, it's another book about endurance. And I, since I don't have my bookcase in front of me, I may not get the author right. Um, Mujica? Oh, Inigo, yeah, yeah, he, he's a, uh, a Basque uh, triathlon coach and, yes. and sports scientist, yeah. 
which was a which was a book when I ordered it at the time. I can't remember, but it was like a two hundred dollar book. I was or just going to say I haven't read it because I can't afford it. <laughs> okay, maybe I can I can loan you my copy. Um, it, it, and and uh, I was actually having a conversation with Steve House um, about it because he said, "Have you seen this?" And I said, "No." And 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 I was thinking, well, no one else in the U.S. is going to get if I get this. It will no one else will have seen it. Um, and then I saw the price, and I went back to see him. I said, "Dude, did you see how much this costs?" He said, yeah, I can't really do it. And I said, well, you know, I've paid more to receive less. Uh, maybe not this week, but certainly this year. So I'm just going to do it, you know, sort of blind trust. And it, and, and it wasn't, um, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. It, for, for me, it wasn't uh, a revelation. There was nothing in there that was... Com, you know, something that, that changed the way that I thought or, or corrected a, a, a faulty position that I had nece necessarily. But, but what he's very good at is presenting what is the current state of the evidence on things like yes. so tapering is one of his, it was his PhD thesis. And so I, I, I have a huge respect for him because uh, he's not trying to, you know, create a new theory or anything. He's like, I'm going to look at all 127 studies that have looked at tapering and I'm going to tell you what the conclusions are. And when you look at 127 studies, you're not going to get an exact recipe, but you're yes. going to get a range of, of what might work and what might not. And that was actually a, a, a kind of a beautiful thing about the book was that, that, that there wasn't a, you know, uh, this is the way, you know, there wasn't a, like a foot down hard on the floor. Um, I didn't have the sense that anything was being sold or that, and, and so in other in than that the $200, regard, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> which uh, fair the, enough. It's a big book. <laughs> it's, it, it's a big book and it was hardbound and you had to send it across an ocean and you know, the, whatever. I mean, I, I, and, yeah. and I said, I've, I've spent more in, on, on far less <laughs> and, and, uh, um, but, but, it, but there was this, and you know, this expectation of, of, oh, this is sort of the next step after. I mean, Lore of Running was, the first edition was 94, if I'm not. First South African edition was mid-80s, like 84. And oh, okay. The, 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 I think the North American edition, the one I got, was 1990. 90, and okay, then, and then, then there's a second edition in like 94, 95, and then third edition in like 2003 or something like that. Right. So it's, it's come a long way. So it's, so it's come a long way. And I just said, it's sort of thought that, okay, this was this is the next thing, the thing that's building on top of that maybe or whatever. And, and um, um, obviously there were a lot of people active in this, area of you know research and that sort of thing um but the the one of the and and, and notes does a good do job of treating it certainly but 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 looking at the you know the multiple factors that will be influencing endurance and so and that was something that, you know, that's quite evident in your book that, that, that these are the categories that we are going to look at that have produced theses yeah and, 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 and I was, i'm glad you said that because that's exactly that's when i said it, i started out thinking it was going to be noakes and, and you know the all noakes book and i just realized it you know it's harder to tell a story that doesn't have a single villain or whatever or easy narrative but sometimes it is what it is and so it's yeah. better to have a messy story that so tries to be a little more faithful than, than trying to just create a narrative that's you know that when you read a book obviously you want to have that elevator pitch what is your book about and it's like well, endurance, but I don't know how to explain beyond that because it's it's not like it's about how this vitamin is going to enhance your endurance, or it's about how we've been doing it wrong all this time and now we know the right way. It's 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 complicated. It's very complicated, and 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 some of, and some of that complication is is uh, due to the individual, you know, 
from individual to individual. Yes, there are some generalities, but you know the fact that that uh, gut absorption of liquids from one person to the next. I mean, I can't say. Look, okay, maybe you are, but you know, not you personally, but you individual over here in the uh, fictitious individual is a you know can tolerate intake of twelve hundred milliliters an hour. Um, I personally not seen it but more and and more likely you know on a bike than on foot just because of the jostling you know issue and the, and the availability of it you know i'm carrying the, the fluid on the on my bike it's with yeah. me at all times so i can drink it or um and so there, there are very complicated things and 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 uh also this idea and it came up in some some uh, conversation today which now there have been so many in the last three days at this conference um but the the the, the notion of uh i guess it was maybe you'd gone to texas was that in or was some it, it, anyway that, that somebody had gone to, to a very humid environment and it's something that i experienced that that uh you know once going from I was living in Utah and going to Wisconsin in the middle of summer for a bike race and realizing like that I can't, I, I cannot drink it to, and, and I was actually quite, you know, having conversations with, uh, at that time with Bill Meisner and Steve Bourne from hammer, cause they were, you know, some guys that I thought were relatively smart on the topic and, 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 and the, the, the idea of, you know, trying to replace all of the, you know, sort of salt and mineral and electrolyte losses, um, and, uh, and the fluid losses and weigh myself before and after and this kind of thing. And there was just not enough water in the state of Wisconsin that, that I could get in me yeah. to, 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 to keep up with what I was losing during that race. And, and, uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't recall exactly, but it was probably a week to recover from that after. Uh, yeah. And it's not clear what you could do differently. Like it's, it's not that you didn't, weren't aware that drinking is important. It's just like, man, sometimes, and this is the, yeah. So we were talking earlier. I went to, I, I've been in Texas. I was in Texas last week, gave a couple talks in Houston and Dallas. And I think it was before the Dallas one. I, d- I just held up the book and said, everyone take, take the book, tear out chapter eight. Cause chapter eight, I thought I knew something about heat because, but I'm from Canada and I just arrived in, you know, Dallas and Houston. Hot. It's the the heat index is 108. So, the, the, no doubt, if I lived in Houston, the chapter, the the tilt of the chapter would have been a little different, just because I would have been, it would have been higher on my, you know, like I said before, I I sort of might be somewhere on the spectrum between, you know, just drink when you feel like it and drink all the time. I'd probably be pushed a little, little different if I lived in a 108 heat, heat, uh, heat, heat index regularly because, and, you know, and humid too, because I, I'd, I'd have had some bad experiences with it. I, yes. <laughs> and, and, and there, there's an interesting thing just from a, from a writing point of view, because of, um, where we just, even when we are conscious of the potential for bias and, and it could be something as, as ridiculous or as, as simple sorry, it's not ridiculous, um, as a geographic bias, like the, like the point of view from, um, from, from Canada or from Utah is definitely going to be different than the point of view from, um, you know, there was another race that I did in Georgia. Um, (laughs) and it was a a similar kind of thing. Like, I I don't know how you guys do this, but that's parachuting in from, you know, a a place where 16% humidity is, is a, a wet day, you know, or something, um, and, 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 and not being adapted to the, to the local conditions. Um, whereas, uh, you know, somebody who's been there for a long time and who has been adapted or in, in Texas and, and able to, and to, to manage the heat and humidity, um, 
would have a different idea and, 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 but, but we don't know. And there's not really, you know, I haven't necessarily seen a, you know, a different hydration recommendation, you know, based on well, that I, that I could respect, you know, for, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, that, that is different for, you know, the, the, the arid climate versus the humid climate. It's, it, it's the recommendations are more universal regardless of climate, which then puts us in a bit of a conundrum. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me bring up something that, that, uh, came up at the conference over the last couple of days. I think it was, uh, Paul, uh, uh, yes. a guy from the, um, U.S. Special Forces, who was talking a little bit of, a bit about endurance, and someone asked him how you prepare for, or learn, or train for it, and, and he said the first rule is humility. And and you today added to that, saying you know if you want to achieve great things, the second that 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 is rule number one, but rule number two is hubris, which you know I think it was fantastic and really kind of captures the the polarities. But the reason I brought that up is back to the bias question. Uh, of, of, yeah, we all have our biases and, and I, you know, I try to be as aware and open about my biases I can, but there's always biases that I'm not even aware of. Like, like this thing about coming from Toronto to Houston. It's like now I realize, but I hadn't really thought about that before. So back to step one, you know, maybe it's the first rule of, you know, writing about or trying to, you know, pontificate about endurance too is humility. Like I, I really try not to pretend I know more than I do. Um, the message always gets, filter down it from in my own mind like at a certain point you you can't write a book that's nothing but waffle you have to just give your opinions at some point and yes. ho- hopefully people understand that you're not that you're not chiseling them in a in a tablet and that you know next year i could change my opinions it's hard to change your opinions i i, I recognize one of the biases i see in myself writing about sports science is that you know i flip through a bunch of journals on a regular basis so i'm looking through hundreds of titles of of sports science and physiology articles on you know weekly the ones that jump out at me that that i'm like yeah i should pull this up and see if i want to write about this of course they're influenced by my worldview and of course they're influenced by what i've written before and that i i don't really want to write the article that says alex the last 10 articles you wrote were totally wrong (laughs) i try to be open to that but look you know it's a human endeavor right and 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 we and we all have our individual interests and so the, the 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 thread is going to be you know, the one that we pull on is the one that we, you know, oh, I like that's that thread is red. I like the red thread. I'm going to pull it, you know, and and so so there are those um, biases, but it, and and for sure we're all guilty. But I and I I completely appreciate the I, I might have been at the other end of the spectrum of waffling many times of being a bit more declarative about things and jumping up and down and shouting. But um and then maybe shouting something different even a year later. And, and, uh, and, and in all honesty, you need, you need people shouting something <laughs> simple sometimes. And, and uh, even if it's wrong, <laughs> even if it turns out to have been wrong, you, because humans aren't going to... There's people who are interested in the waffle and who, who yes. are interested in diving into the, uh, the details. And, and I, I love that. And I'm one of them. But at a certain point, I also have to make de- I have to make decisions on how I train, and, and and what that boils down to, whether you acknowledge it or not, in my head is I'm making a decision that this is this is the the the, the truth I'm going to go with for now, and and not everyone wants to spend, you know, 
six years thinking about this, they want to just tell me, what what do I need to do? You tell me. Yeah. And I understand, you know, hopefully they understand that it's not based on, you know, immaculate uh, knowledge planted in your head. But you're, you're give, they're trusting you to give you the best information that you've got. Yeah. And you give it to them. And, and, and if they want the nuances, they can ask. It, it, and it's, um, I think that the act of like, you know, somebody shouting um, gives, uh, you know, other observers maybe a, a monolithic statement or whatever to, to, to react against, either to support or to, to question or to, you know, or to contradict. And, um, it, and so for sure there's, there's value in that. And, and I would personally, and this is a temperament thing, like I would rather read that or see that than, oh, this may be true, but there was this other thing that said maybe it's not, and so it's unclear, and so more research is needed. I'm like, that doesn't help me. I, yeah, and sometimes, you know, <laughs> look, I'll, I'll defend that since I'm, I'm certainly okay. guilty of that sometimes, which is that um, that serves a purpose sometimes. Like, let's talk about ice, no, let's not talk about ice baths, but let me use ice baths okay. as an example, which is like, I, I've, I've read more articles about ice baths and I've written more articles about ice baths than I can count or remember or ever want to. Um, I don't know whether they work. And, and, I, and I'm not saying I don't know whether they work in that I doubt whether they work. I'm saying, no, I actually don't know. I think there's a chance that they, they do something really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. I think there's a chance that they do nothing at all other than make you feel good, which is not nothing, of, of course. Um, but I really don't know which of those is true. And, I, you know, I, my, my probability is somewhere between 40 and 60% of those. Now, if I'm an athlete wanting to figure out how to do my training, I don't necessarily want to to you know hear the agonizing of of some guy who who is is really unclear. But there are some there there are some cases where you want to know. Okay, I really do want to know what is the evidence. And if the evidence is I don't know, that's okay. I I I want to know that that people don't know, and yes. then I'll make up my mind on that basis. That you know what, it makes me feel good, and I think that's a valuable thing, and I'm going to do it. But so so there's a place for it. But I think. Um, there's also a place, yeah. Like I said, I think that there's there's a place for both, and and hopefully the the what you what you do is signal to the reader or listener or whatever what it is you're gonna, you're signing up for in any 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 given moment. And so in the book, what what I really what one of the things I I sort of pushed for in the publication process, um, as we started to zero in on titles and subtitles and. Uh, you know, promotional copy on yes. the back of the book. It's like, please let's not let's stay away from service language, from promising that we're gonna help people go faster or farther. I, I think there's things in there that will help people go faster or farther. Maybe, possibly, some people. Yes, um, I, do, I, I think so as well. But, but that's not what the book is about. And it's no. <laughs> and and if I if I opened up that book and read that chapter on hydration, hoping to get a tip on how to prepare for my ultra marathon in in hot conditions i'd be annoyed as hell by the end of that chapter that it's like you know spare me your existential crisis and just tell me how much water to drink yeah and then i'll fail to do that yes so, so, um. so, so, so that i can so that i can understand what standard i'm failing to meet yeah. because of the exigencies of real life but uh, but yeah so hopefully it's kind of truth in advertising uh, uh saves us just be, and being upfront about what we're trying to do I, I i actually think you did a pretty good job of that i mean and and you know right now i'm gonna i'm gonna stick on the ice bath topic because it did come up earlier today and and i hadn't thought or talked about ice baths in a while i mean i see selena you know she'll come home from a particularly grueling training session and there she'll be in the bathtub um 
and, and and whether it works, whether it doesn't work, something that I think that you brought up in that conversation today was it's something that is uncomfortable that I'm doing for potential benefit. And, and, and I must be, so you're using a physical act to manipulate your psychology because the ultimate outcome is that I'm really dedicated. This is me demonstrating my commitment to improvement, uh, you know, in, in this, you know, sort of fitness task or whatever. And so I, I think if, if, if that's the only thing, you know, because the whole discussion of is it 54 degrees, is it 47 degrees, you know, what, I don't, get in some, get in some water and, and uh, but, but, but the idea that, that this is reinforcing um, a particular uh, psychological state or mental state regarding your relationship with your uh, sport or competitive activity, um, if you can do that one thing and it manipulates it and keeps it a very positive thing and, and reminds you um, that it, it's important and, and, and you're demonstrating by, by volunteering for discomfort um, that, that, that you also believe it's important, I think this is a wonderful mechanism. Yeah, I, th- I think you know, you're signaling to yourself how serious you are. And there's this, this famous quote from one of those old school runners from the 60s or 70s, I don't remember who, of like, I, I love training in you know rainstorms or whatever it was because who else is going to be stupid enough to train in the rain and I'm getting an edge. And I, I think it's a pretty old quote because these days everyone trains, you know, everyone does their training. But back in the day when training was a little more, uh, you know, maybe a little Hit less or miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> guy, I, I love getting an edge. And so it's like the ice bath. It's like, yes, I'm doing this thing that's hard. I'm getting an edge. I'm, I'm, I'm really committed. And, and I think, you know, one of the, this is a, you know, maybe a little tangent, but I guess one of, one of the riddles for me, and you know, and, and again, just to, to, to tell people, you know, we've both been at this conference for the last three days trying to understand, um, I guess the, the, the quickest way to say it is trying to understand how uh, collective effects, how, how, the, how being part of a group of people can enhance individual performance. And, and to, I think to you and to me, I think that's mediated by the brain and what we're interested in. There's yes. something going on in the brain. And so one of the, on, on, and that's something that's obviously, you know, as the, as the book goes into in, you know, exhaustive detail is something I'm really interested in. But a, a riddle that I've had for a long time is I, I went through a period of training where training was the most important thing in my life, where running and competing and all, all I wanted to do, like, you know, we all have full days and it's like, how do you fit things in? Well, there's some immovables and then there's everything else. And for a yeah. long time, even when I was, you know, working very hard in grad school or whatever, running and everything connected to running was the first piece of the jigsaw puzzle that fit in. And then I would try to fit in, you know, work or school. And then, you know, potentially, usually that was it. Everything is built around that. Yeah, but there was never, uh, there was never any question for me in in like almost any context, unless I was like on an airplane for 24 hours, that would I, would I get my run in that day? Well, maybe it was supposed to be a day off, but if it's not supposed to be a day off, I'm going to run unless there's some compelling reason not to. I'm never not going to run because, um, you know, I got busy or whatever, because something else like, it, you know, if I have to miss my high school graduation, I'll miss my high school graduation. Like that's running comes first. Anyway, that was a long period of my life. I got injured. I, 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 uh, I sort of ended my competitive career, but in my early thirties, I had, I sort of, I moved back to Toronto and I had a chance to kind of reconnect with my running friends, some, some old running friends and just as a social thing, start training with them. And, and soon I was training pretty hard with them and, Okay, and, 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 and it was great. And, and, and it, it was back to a point where on the metrics on how much, how many miles a week was I running? How many workouts a week was I doing? How like hard workouts, how, you know, on the metrics I was training 
on paper as hard as I ever was. Uh, but there was a difference. It was that it was the second or maybe the third jigs piece of you know piece jigsaw puzzle piece to fit into my day. I was working, uh, starting out as a journalist, and and I wanted to make it, and so that was the big thing. So that comes first. And then you know I was I was dating the woman who's now my wife, and she was, you know, quote unquote, fortunately living in another city. So that was not a big time commitment, but you know okay. the, the phone call or the weekend trip or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, and I, you know, I did this for a couple of years, a year and a half, two years, and I ran some, some decent times and, and, uh, and, you know, had, had enjoyed it, but I never came close to what I, how I competed four years earlier when I cared more about running. And there's lots of, there's a billion ways you can explain it, but as far as I, I try to reduce, and, and, and there was a palpable feeling, the difference between getting to the end of the race and kind of feeling that I'd you know, gone to another dimension and getting to the end of the race and saying, okay, that's done. And and walking off. And I was like, I couldn't access, I couldn't run as fast as I used to. And part of that is because I couldn't access some part of myself that I used to be able to access. Okay. And, and I think the, 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 the the sort of payoff of this long winded story is that I don't know what that is, but I think it has some connection to what we were just talking about. The, the, the ice bath signals to you that you're fully committed and there are a lot of other things, a lot of other decisions and thoughts you have that are sig- signaling to you how important is this, and and that shows up in the race, uh, in you know all the infinitesimal things adding up in 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 how hard are you going to push this? Well, that depends how important it is, and how important is it? Well, let's look back at our behavior. Boy, I've suffered for this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I don't so do anything push there. Quite hard, exactly. And if it was something that was relegated to you know third level status or whatever, like so, so that work came first, and then relationship, and then running, um, yeah, maybe you don't uh, invest uh, um, a, a, as much effort on the on, on race day. Yeah, so that's my kind of crackpot theory as to you know when you there's the long debates about whether runners should be or you know, and I, I say runners because that's the world of my obsession, but you know whether whether endurance athletes in sort of semi-marginal sports mm-hmm. should be working a, a job or what does it do if you're working a jo- part-time job, full-time job? Should you be all in? Is being all in bad for you? And I think there's lots of to say about that in terms of how you spend your time. But I think part of it is, well, wh- where is your mental energy? Not, not so much are you spending time at a desk or something, but wh- where, where is your emotional focus? Um, and, and, and that's going to be more important than the number of hours you're working. I think that, yeah, if the emotional focus is, is on the obsession on, on, on running, for example, it's a, it's a very dangerous performance enhancing drug, let's say, (laughs) 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 um, just because, uh, and, and, and I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but, but the idea that, you know, the amount of focus that I can apply, that I can that I can basically rob from other tasks and apply to this thing that is the most important, is going to give me an advantage over the person who put grad school first, for example. If if it, you make it to the start line in one piece, because it's dangerous and in, on two uh, you know on two dimensions or whatever. Because uh, yeah, as, and we've had conversations about this, but yeah, it's it's yeah, it, it it's a big performance enhancer. But it's 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 also a powerful drug that you need to. Uh, All drugs have dangerous side yeah, effects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and this, yeah, this one's no exception. Yeah, um, one of the, the part of the, uh, I, I guess the the instigation for the idea of um, uh, to, to 
to record the podcast at this time was sort of based on uh, looking at the at, at the fuel chapter in the book and and where you know what what I consider to be one of the greatest fueling challenges of my entire career as a climber, um, which was to go what what ultimately ended up being sixty three hours um, quote nonstop unquote um, because there there were stops but. Uh, but but without sleep and, and, and in sort of a, a continuous single push on the south face of Denali um, with Steve House and Scott Baggies. And and part of the uh, the fueling conundrum in the mountains had always been, um, I mean, we're trying to, let's see, in the way that we climb things, we had everything that um, we needed, we carried with us. Uh, so... Yeah, food. Well, if the water is the heavy, heaviest, food is the second heaviest, sort of thing. And I had always, uh, I, I mean, it was it would have been the mid '90s. Um, I mean, but it, 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 regardless, uh, I had always been searching for a way to get more calories for less weight. <laughs> uh, and and this could be, you know powder form of things, you know, the, like a dehydrated meal is, is the perfect example where all of the, you know, caloric density. And if you read the packaging and believe it, all the nutrients that you could possibly <laughs> need are contained in this sort of astronaut food. Um, and, and, uh, so, so removing the water weight and then adding the water back in, um, and, and then adding, you know, carrying a, bottle full of olive oil or, or, or butter or something in order to add to that a, to make the dehydrated dinner palatable because most of them are not, um, and, and, and doing things ultimately, uh, to, to, to increase the caloric load that, that was, uh, that, that was available, but then also trying to do things, um, at a, quite a good relationship with Bill Vaughn for a long time and was working on various uh, prototype products of the goo gel back in the day. But, um, you know, Vaughn had been uh, at another sort of, um, you can really call it a supplement company, but an energy bar company before and had a lot of experience in this field. And we had talked about these eating strategies and, 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 and for us in the mountains, one of the big things was, okay, we, we can basically keep, our, we can sustain energy levels to some degree while moving but a lot of times and this was before we stopped sleeping on routes but we would stop for the night or a, a an extended period and, and and that would be when we would you know melt snow to cap water and re- refuel our containers of water for the next block of movement and that sort of thing but how could we get enough food in in that amount of time um uh, while we were stationary in some way and we'd come up with strategies of, of introducing some salty food of like, okay, if you have some feta cheese or something, you know, but a very small amount beforehand that sort of stimulates the appetite and then you might be able to eat more. And then if you, and, and the ordering of the food of putting whatever carbohydrates I'm eating in first, because that's actually going to keep me hungry. Whereas if I put all the fat in first, that's going to trigger a satiety enzyme. And that might be, tell me that I'm full before I'm actually full and then I stopped eating the calories that I've carried. And so we were strategizing on a, on a, on a number of levels. Um, and in 95, I would have been, you know, right after the, uh, the, the Zone diet book was uh, came out, a guy I was working with might have been, would have been late 95 or early 96 at the latest. And, and uh, a, a guy who I was working with um, as my sort of strength and conditioning coach at the time had 
had read it and looked into it and he was involved in a number of different sort of dietary strategies for his own climbing and uh and so i was an early adopter of the zone because i read it i bought it and i'm like well why not because i don't have a coherent thesis of my own that i'm operating on now in terms of like macronutrient distribution if you will because i had no i just knew that fat had more calories and so for a given weight i could double the number of calories from fat than from uh, carbohydrate in the mountains and uh so i got a scale and i got the calorie count book and i did it quite uh diligently um with, with some discipline in the beginning uh I lost a bunch of weight got very very lean anything for me at that time that that improved power to weight ratio was a good thing so you know be, becoming leaner was uh, was an ideal sort of strategy to get rid of weight that i had to carry that wasn't doing anything for me until winter came hmm. and so at that time uh i went to the mountains i was living in uh in idaho at the time and i and i went to the tetons a couple times uh that winter and got incredibly cold to the uh, to, to 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 a degree that i had never experienced before in the mountains and i had wondered if it had something a little bit to do with the leanness um, but, but then also, you know, maybe the, this macronutrient distribution of the zone diet being 40% carbs, 30% protein, 30% fat was not going to be good for what I wanted to do. So I needed to stay warm and I had in the past eaten, uh, uh, you know, some fat in order to do so because I'd read that, you know, it's burning, keeps you warm. Uh, and so I called up the Sears Institute and actually started this this uh, conversation that lasted for a little bit. And but and, and the main takeaway, you know, when I called them, I said, I don't think this works. You know, I'm cold all the time and blah, blah. And the, the, the big takeaway from that was that uh, Sears told me that you, I could eat up to eight times the normal quantity of fat that would be present in 30 percent um, without affecting having a negative effect on the good parts of the carbohydrate to protein huh. ratio so i said oh eight times well eight times th three is three times 30 is 24 i'm going to round down so i'm going to go on what i uh, later started calling the 40 30 200 <laughs> diet and eating just excessive quantities of fat like having an enormous caloric load far greater than my output on, in, on on a given day not really gaining any of that weight or fat back um but then going out in the mountains in cold temperatures and realizing like a i'm not cold but b i am rarely hungry wow and so now i'm thinking oh my god if this is a result of consuming a fair amount of fat uh that you know, let's say blood sugar levels or energy levels are are, are, are more stable. Um, and that, well, that's then again, that's another reason for me to carry more of that in the mountains or, or to, to uh, uh, try and adapt my body to, to, to burning as much fat as possible um, because A, it's got twice the calories and B, if I'm not getting hungry, I don't need to carry as much. So this... This started me down a whole sort of trajectory of uh, learning about sort of the fat adaptation, realizing, however, that there are certain strength or speed issues that the energy yield of fat cannot fuel that level of intensity. So I still need to have the carbohydrate thing. I was utterly convinced at the time of the thesis that fat burns in a carbohydrate flame. 
if you mm. will. And so when I was eating a lot of fat in the mountains, I was also regularly taking in some kind of carbohydrate, either in the form of gel or some maltodextrin type calories in a drink mix in order to uh, potentially spare muscle glycogen if that if I was even aware of that at the time, but mostly that, okay, I need to have blood glucose levels of X in order to you know access these fat stores. Anyway, so this became an ongoing thing that has not gone away. And, and have you kept up? Like, how have you evolved since then in terms of, or how did you evolve in subsequent years uh, as you had you know, more experiences in different places? A- activity, as, as the duration of the events, like so when, when I, I sort of quit climbing, if you will, and then and, uh, and sort of in 2004, 2005 timeframe, I was doing a lot of ski mountaineering racing, um, the shorter races, which would maybe be an hour and a half or two hours, uh, you know, those I would, re- I would only, you know, take some kind of drink, um, and, and just count on not fueling during the race, partially because I was going to be out of my, you know, when I'm anytime my mouth was open, it was because there wasn't enough air and I was trying to get more air and then there's no room to, you know, I, I, I couldn't figure out, um, you know, great fueling strategies for those races. The longer ones. Um, I did two in Europe that were, that were pretty long. Uh, one of them, I think we finished in just around eight hours and, and that one, um, I went to back to a combination of fat and carbohydrate fueling strategy. Um, but I'd always, I still eat uh, to this, to this day, I still eat, uh, a, a high volume of fat. I'm not afraid of it. Uh, and, um, and, and it works for what I want to do. Uh, I will depending and now I'll, I'll, you know what one of the things that I um, the, the biggest lesson for me that I took away from uh, uh, Friel's book you know the, the paleo diet for athletes was the concept of you know nutrition periodization so I will eat my carbohydrates around uh, you know based on the, the training that I'm doing so it's either I, carbohydrates up front in order to, 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 to fuel or to recover after the fact but then you know once that strategy is implemented you know post post-effort carbohydrate intake and then uh in whatever window it happens in i'm not too diligent about you know 20 minute 30 minute window you know if it if, yeah, if, yeah. If it, 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 it's because i'm not really competing at a level where this matters anymore and i'm not sure it does matter but anyway that's another okay excellent yeah. <laughs> um it, it, and, and then after that the carb my carbohydrate intake is relatively low so yeah. only around training in some way and the rest of the time it's more of a sort of protein fat based thing and not because I'm, you know, trying to be in ketosis or something, whatever the, you know, the current deal is yeah. anyway, I can get there with a supplement, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but mostly just that, that, um, you know, I think carbohydrates for me in my life are appropriate for a certain thing. And that's, it, it, it's, so it's been fascinating talking to you a little bit about this over the last few days and then to hear the, the, the fuller story. Um, it's interesting because so when I was getting into this fuel stuff and as as we all know um, there's lots of debate these days over like low low carb high fat and and there's there's interesting data in in a lot of different directions and I think this is another one of those cases where it's like like hydration I'm interested to see what what we continue to keep learning but the the other lesson that I've learned is um, you know this this wheel thing people have seen the wheel before it's not it's not a new invention so like when I was talking to Louise Burke, who, who's uh, at the Australian Institute of Sport, she's done a lot of uh, yes, a, a lot of very major research, including a study that was 
interpreted as maybe not entirely fair, but interpreted as as finding that that low carb high fat wasn't going to be helpful for four hour race walkers. That, yes. that, there's a whole there's a whole thing there to discuss. But but uh, one of the things she said to me is like. First of all, people interpret her as like the, the carb warrior who wants to discredit fat. It's like nothing could be farther than the truth. She, 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 you know, did this, you know, it must be multi-million dollar study with, with, with race walkers from around the world trying to figure this out. Not because she wanted to be able to say, ha, 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 but because she's looking for an edge for the Australian Olympic team and she, yeah. th- she thought it would work. Moreover, her like, and one, so this is one of the things she stressed to me when I was asking her about this is like, this 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 isn't like wow we discovered this in 2012 this is actually what she spent the 90s and early 2000s of her research career on you look back and she's got like a dozen papers trying to under find that mix what they were trying to do was the, the protocol they were looking at was a week of high fat diet to pump up the fat uh fat burning rate yes and then you go off for a day or two and you race on carbs um, and, and what they found for the events they were looking at is that w- exactly what you said, which is that there's some limitations in terms of the high intensity stuff. And so if you're, if you're trying to run an Olympic marathon or lower, or if you're a Tour de France rider who needs to go for a long time, but also needs to be able to hammer when the breakaway or, or the, the yes. hill comes, it just doesn't, they, they ended up concluding by around 2004 that, it, uh, yeah, there's something there, but in the context that they're looking at, Olympic sport, you know, three hours tops, really two hours, two mm-hmm. hours or less for them in mo- the vast majority of cases, or, or including high high intensity surges. It wasn't what they were looking for. But but Louise has been on, you know, looking for the edge from fat and knowing that there's something there for for twenty years. And obviously, there's been other people, including you, following the same path. And as we were talking about earlier, and it's actually one of a book that I, I, I did she, and and I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm asking because my, my memory is inaccurate. I don't have my bookshelf in front of me. Um, but one of the little books that I'd had about diet was was something that she, I think she had written written in conjunction with Mon, maybe? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Sports and, and nutrition was, for athletes or something for, like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and, it, and it was like a very, it was a thin volume um, and... Uh, which was sort of where I first heard her heard her name and, and, and read some of that work. So I know that she's been active in her, for a really long time. And, and the interesting thing is what you just said, okay, that we're looking at things at an Olympic level. And if the, if the maximum duration is sort of a, of some of these events is sort of two hour time frame, that indicates a particular level of intensity. Yeah. And that level of intensity uh, may not be uh, the, 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 the contribution from fat, at, at those levels of intensity may not be as high as what I'm looking at it, you know, for an eight hour sort of thing or a 12 hour thing or, or longer because, well, because carbs. Bingo. <laughs> and, and, and we were talking earlier about uh, Frederick Schwatka, the explorer back in the 1860s, I think it was, mm-hmm. who, who sledded, I don't know, 5,000 kilometers. And I'm making up the number because I can't remember, but yeah. some, some ludicrous journey across the Arctic, uh, you know, eating nothing but meat uh, and fatty meat at that. So, and and reporting these, these sort of same well, the observations that, it, it, that that the fatty meat was the important part. yeah yeah the, 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 the dogs got the lead. protein yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and so so it's like as uh, you know as in so many things it's like we keep kind of rediscovering the same thing but um, I think I think there's great you know this this spin of the wheel is it, people are sort of getting a more nuanced understanding and not just saying is it yes or no it's what's the context and so. 
you know, I came to 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 the uh, the Slovak Direct, I guess it's now not yes. the Czech Direct. Geopolitics. I believe in the beginning it was something like the Czechoslovakian Direct because it was United Country, and then that was shortened by us North Americans, you know, lacking any awareness or sensitivity for as the, the Czech Direct. But it was actually three Slovaks who did it. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, I, I, as an aside, I was totally blown away that Czech and Slovakia were two different things when they broke up. I was like, "Are you kidding me?" It's like making two countries called Can and Ada. <laughs> yes. But, but, but anyway, the the point being, I, I came to that because I was tr- I was trying to understand like there there are contexts where what people are saying, what even people like Louise Burke, who are cast as these you know carb proponents, mm-hmm. if you listen to what they're saying, it's like you know like think about mountaineering this is a whole different kettle of fish where first of all the intent the, the sustained intense intensity is lower so fat is really the key second of all every ounce you carry it you know it has to be carried you. yeah every ounce you carry is carried exactly <laughs> and 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 so I, look i don't come from this world but i started to cast around and and, and sort of say is it, are people doing this and, and you know i came across steve's book mm-hmm. and and read the story of the uh, uh, of the Slovak Direct, and you know, I, I to me it was an illustration, maybe not a perfect one, but an illustration of what Louise Burke has ended up advocating, which is, uh, you know, in addition to to uh, uh, nutritional periodization, which I think which you mentioned, and I think is a is a really you know important concept, but also m- metabolic flexibility. You know. Why choose fat or carbohydrate when you can have fat and carbohydrate? And this is something that this is exactly what you uh, sort of figured out for yourself. And it's what, uh, you know, a lot of ultra runners have have gravitated to. They're eating, you know, very low carb, high fat diets, but they're periodizing carbohydrate around their their big workouts or races so that they have both carbohydrate and fat in the situation. So when I read that, uh, you know, by one account, at least that you, you guys had planned one gel per person per hour for 48, 48 hours yes. um my stomach turned a little bit but 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 i thought well <laughs> not any more than our stomach tur- stomachs turned uh after you know consistent intake of carbohydrate gels for a long time yeah and i, and I I'm, I'm gonna hazard a guess that if you were you know in a, in a time machine and doing that climb again you, you you would make some adjustments and do some things differently but nonetheless the the, the big the big principle of being ready to burn fat a lot, but taking carbohydrates, hopefully now in a more appetizing form, maybe, but uh, make sure you have carbohydrates when you're actually, you know, in the, in the thick of it. I think that's a great example of understanding how to, how to take advantage of the properties of both these things. Especially if, I mean, if you look at, um, and, and in the, the extreme alpinism book, I, I, I don't have the quote exactly, but I, hypothesized that you know the well sort of adapted athlete could shift back and forth to from fat to carbohydrate fuel sources to you know with relative ease according to intensity if you know uh, uh, and that that seems to have been proven out um in in in, in this era in a way but um the when we talk about for me to talk about nutrition periodization it's not just in a 24-hour cycle it's also in a in a training 
and competition period in a way. Like I'm, uh, uh, and so I think maybe what Louise Burke has been saying is basically, is basically eat a diet that is appropriate for what you are doing. Yeah, yeah. And, on, on the micro scale and on the macro scale, yeah. and think about the demands of what you're doing, and and yeah, both during training and the goal for competition. And I, uh, and I guess one other thing I, I, that I want to sort of th- th- throw in there is that when people think about fat burning and optimizing that. They tend to think only about diet, but the 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 thing that um, so I would say some athletes knew um, a lot of athletes didn't know, but we're doing it anyway. Is that in, uh, aerobic fitness is one of the greatest contributors to your how quickly you can burn fat, yeah. and the fitter you are, the more fat you're going to burn at a given uh, you know power or pace or whatever the case may be. So you know if. <laughs> There are lots of ways to optimize your performance, but don't bother with the second order stuff until you got you've gotten fit. Like yes. get get fit is stage one. It's always it's always stage one before and, and it's I feel guilty. So I write I write this, you know, column about the science of endurance performance and stuff like that. And everything I write about is like a second order or third order effect because you can't just write go go out and train every day otherwise <laughs> y- your readership plummets rapidly um but it's like so I, I i'm interested in this stuff but it's all second order effects compared to the fundamental prospect just just get fit go train get fit and and and, and then especially when if you're trying to sort of manipulate you know your fuel your body's na- sort of natural fuel selection i mean if you read in lore of running there is a you know there's a beautiful sort of uh, uh, breakdown of Mark Allen's training um, and the fact, and then I think there's a, there's an equation there, like the uh, sort of a backwards uh, math about oxidation rates of fat that he was able to produce through, through I presumably uh, dietary manipulation, but also the, but also the training and, and that if he ran and I can't remember the exact, well, I'm going to say the, the, uh, one of those years that he won, it was a 240 marathon or something. And, and if you, you know, if he was purely carb dom, you know, dominant, all of that was gone by the time he got off the bike. And so to run a 240 marathon at that pace, um, I think the oxidative rates were calculated at, um, that, that, that a normal sort of national level athlete, I think it's 0.7 gram, 0.75 grams per minute, something like that. And then that maybe by way of training and dietary manipulation, he had bumped his up. Like the only way to run 240 fueled predominantly by fat was like 1.15 grams uh, per minute or something that was, uh, you know, know, statistically significant difference between the normal uh, high level athlete and a truly great athlete. And I'm going to pull some numbers out of my head. So, so these may be a little off, but the sort of general, consensus until three, four, five years ago was that, one, you know, one or 1.1 grams per hour, if I, or grams per, per I think it's per, a minute. Per minute. I mean, so, yeah, okay. But we're, we're, we're waving our hands here, yeah. uh, you know, here, like, here the hand waving. <laughs> one, one to 1.1 was about as high as people thought you could, you could go. Um, and over the last few years, there's been a bunch of studies of like ultra runners who've been in, in, in you know, on low carb, high fat diets for, for a long period of time. So they're they're f- as fit as, as a human gets yeah, and, and they're focusing their diet on fat to a, to a, you know, like 80% fat or whatever, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty high fat diets. And they're getting up to like 1.6 or, or something like that. Wow. And so that's great. As long as you, you, you don't need to sprint for the victory. Yes. And, and, but, but it's, it's like, this is why it was, it's, it's like, 
there is new knowledge coming out and, and you know any even anyone who's super skeptical about low carb high fat you can be skeptical about whether it's going to enhance performance in a given context like a marathon and and personally for me I'd be skeptical about a marathon say but this is interesting this is new knowledge that's come out of this debate that's like yeah those are high numbers that we haven't seen before and this shows that that uh, we're learning new things, and and so these debates are, are valuable, even though they're sometimes uh, you know tiresome uh, to be to be totally honest. But but the uh, the questions being asked force people to go back and take data and say, hey, yeah, there is something different and new here. And 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 if you're an ultra marathoner going for eight hours or ten hours, that's a different challenge than a marathon. And so maybe you don't care about the sprint, and maybe 1.6 grams is actually in in freeing you from the having to take in that 20th gel uh, it's giving you what you need and and maybe if it, you know if if you know you're carrying let's see you have a high oxidation rate of fat and and you're carrying it with you so that you don't need to maybe it and and you're one of those people who um can't necessarily tolerate intake during the effort then maybe being more fat adapted alleviates the need for fuel intake during the effort i, I would say in ultra running that's probably the the biggest factor because right? i mean the most of, important factor a lot of the you know the, the you know racer you know ultra runners uh races end with gut issues i mean and 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 maybe those races end with gut due to gut issues before the finish line so yeah, yeah no 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 question at all and and, and, and I, just in the interest of of full you know waffling as is my my, my let's habit, do it <laughs> there was a, there was a, a good uh, case study published a couple of years ago on the dietary habits of a couple of truly elite ultra run- runners like Rob Carr, who who uh, he was like ultra runner of the year in 2014, I think. Okay. Uh, I think he, uh, if he didn't win Western States, he certainly won everything else. Um, and he's like classic, traditional, straight up, nothing but carbs. And he can take in those carbs, and he can he can eat them. And that was the other person studied was was the same. I can't. I am I'm blanking on the name. So it's possible to succeed, and those guys are fine. But like you said, there's individual variation, and I think the the big one there really is uh, gut tolerance and the ability to get to the finish line while running really hard, while eating sufficiently digestible foods. Yeah. Um, so so you know that's a huge new arrow or arrow in the quiver if you're trying to figure out what works for you. If you can re- dramatically reduce the amount of food you need to take in the race. It was a um, interesting sort of a few years ago. Um, I was uh, Asker Yukendrup. I'm not. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but I know. But, but, but that's but, close enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and he had written, you know, published a book, uh, you know, a nutrition, you know, for sports book, um, which had you know a lot of good information in it. And, and I was in the sort of process of writing our um, endurance training seminar stuff, and and uh, and so I was reading a lot of what he was putting out and, and at a certain time there i think they said okay the maximum rate of you know absorption of carbohydrates you know if it's a mixture of maltodextrin and fructose and you know whatever other sort of uh additives that create a nice osmotic solution or, or e- easy to you know cross that the barrier um it, it, something in in the order of like 350 calories an hour was like the maximum uptake and you know, I, I I tried to do some backwards math on some things, and I was racing my bike at the time, and and uh, um, and, and and road cycling. You know, you can actually eat a fair amount, and and some of these races that I was doing, 
like Logan to Jackson, which is 206 miles, you know, a little bit of like a nine and a half hour race for me. Um, you know, I got to eat, you know, I'm, I'm eating my way to the finish line essentially in some, in some ways. And looking at that and thinking, my God, I, I don't know if I could ever possibly tolerate that much. And no matter, I mean, I tried everything from, you know, I never tried Sean Kingry's, uh, well, his, his handle on Instagram is mashed potatoes and frosting, <laughs> um, which actually came from a, a friend of mine named Cody Oates, uh, who used, he used to, he raced for like the, uh, Vowder's original sort of Denver cycling team back in the day. I think they were called 5810 or something. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, he was out on a ride with some guys and, and, you know, bonking and he, they're sort of like an hour from home and somebody handed him some old school guy handed him a Ziploc bag. And the Ziploc bag had mashed potatoes and cake frosting in it. <laughs> and he said, eat this. And, and so Cody ate it. And he's just so, he said, I was on fire for 30 minutes. Unfortunately, I was 60 minutes from home when I <laughs> ate it. And he said the crash, the sugar crash was spectacular. But that it was like this just incredible injection of rocket fuel at the time. Anyway, the um, but but, but sort, sort sort of looking at, at food intake and, and what could happen, like I can this may be the ideal level of intake at 350 calories per hour in order to you know reduce the effects of a t- you know this that the other, but I can't do it. Yeah, so let let me jump in and say uh, almost nobody can, <laughs> but <laughs> but the one thing the one thing to to add to that is the trainability of the gut. Yes, it's like. There's a lot of things that if you try, you will say, I can't do that. Some of them, if you devote six months to it, you will be able to do or become a lot closer to doing. So uh, what Asker would say is get out there every Sunday or or, or twice a week and mm-hmm. practice, you know, pushing your limits. Put whatever whatever it is that makes you un- seriously uncomfortable, ride that, ride that barrier and try and bring it up. And And there's... He, he's published a couple of reviews on this. There's like mechanistic data suggesting that, you, you know, if you if you hit your gut with a lot of carbs, uh, the density of transporters that move carbs from the intestine into the bloodstream mm-hmm. will increase. Okay. And there's some case that there's certainly lots of anecdotal stuff where athletes have said, I couldn't do this. Then I, then I trained I it. And I, now I can. Um, you know, that's 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 not super rigorous or anything and it's not necessarily it doesn't mean that it's the right approach that maybe it's like why would i hit myself over head the head with this frying pan when i can not do that and there's another option yeah um so because yeah. i could see that i mean somebody who's trying to you know stimulate fat adaptation five days a week and stimulate their you know train their 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 ability to uh it becomes a pretty grueling life, I would think, yeah, I just, would. just on the gastronomic <laughs> level. But so, so yeah, I, I you know, I, I, you got to think pretty carefully about which road you want to travel, and, and traveling both would be hard. But I, I, I just, just to to make the point that, um, you know, it, it, if you think uh, trying to push your, like, to people who are on the carb train, it's like that's what you got to do. Yes, and, and God forbid I would try and follow a, a you know, a low carb, high fat diet because that sounds like an incredible inconvenience why would i do that and, and it's a mirror image of like i'm happy eating you know this low carb high fat but you want me to pound that much sugar on my weekly runs uh that sounds like the worst thing and you know whatever the 
I, I, I'm agnostic, but they're, they're both strategies have proven effective. There, there are people at the very top of the sport who have used either strategies, and both of them have some, you know, some re- reasonable scientific backing behind them. So um, they're both there, and that's it's, it's kind of like the whole uh, minimalist shoe thing, the the the, the great uh, you know frenzy of 2009. It's like. Uh, Oh goodness! Can we go there? Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm pulling back on the reins here because we're not okay. actually gonna go yes. there. But what I'm gonna say yeah. is, there is a greater diversity of shoes in the typical shoe store these days. It's actually starting to kind of calcify again. But, um, and it, you know, I, I, I've never gotten minimalist, but I run in lighter shoes than I used to, and and so yeah. the knowledge that uh, that these the, sort of extreme the, positions. Or you know have have uh, you know proposed or or whatever always comes down to a bit more centrist uh, position Definitely. eventually so, and and so I'm yeah that's true and, and I, but I will also say I bet there are some people who are running now because they discovered minimalist shoes who wouldn't be running otherwise and conversely I bet there are some people now who are running now happily who are doing it because they discovered Hoka's yes and and wouldn't be doing it if they hadn't because people are diverse and so. When we realize that there's two roads instead of one, that's generally a good thing because most of us can probably pick either road, but there are definitely some people who really only can take one road for whatever idiosyncratic reason. Yeah. And probably they're going to end up believing that everyone should take that road and, and that you know their road is the only road. And if we can tune that out that part and just say, hey, it's great, we got two roads. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the minimalist thing of 2009, the big issue for me there was just the proselytizing about it. Like, okay, I, I, I get this is interesting. And, and, and I have in the past coming off of ski season, for example, ski touring season, um, where uh, uh, I would run barefoot on a grass field in order to try and you know get some muscle back in my feet so that I could hike in the summer mm-hmm. in flexible shoes or go rock climbing and have this musculature, which you know, five months of ski boots uh, allowed I, to atrophy. I, I told you I was pulling on the reins. I'm trying. Okay. I'm trying not to send us down that road. But okay. but, but, but but honestly, like I, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the same same boat as you. I, I think it's a great strengthening technique. I think it's great for some people. I'll, uh, I, I I told myself I wasn't going to go down this road. But yeah, anyway, it's not. I, I, I will not. say, it, you know. For kids, I, I, I think try not to put them in the most heavy shoe possible when they're when they're four years old. Boom. Yeah, I like that. Um, th- let me circle back to the uh, Slovak Direct and talk a little bit about then how the the, the, the dietary you know plan that I had followed um, on the route just because of what we carried. I mean, if we have this idea, and and I don't know that we really spoke much about it after the fact, but but there was this the, the, this imperative that we had of okay, every one gel per hour for forty eight hours. So we started up with forty eight and that is forty eight ounces. So there's four pounds of carbohydrate gel in each <laughs> in, you know, in, in each guy in, in not each guy's pack because that's not how we sort of broke down the loads, but um but also I had about a pound of halva and this was and, and halva was one of my sort of go to uh uh Foods in the mountains, uh, dating from the mid '90s, in conversation with um, with Vaughn um, about the you know sort of stomach calming effect of sesame, hmm. and, um, and and plus I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, this is okay, this is like fat and sugar mixed together in this delicious concoction <laughs> that does not freeze that I can Perfect. eat you know for forever because I I find the taste actually quite. Uh, quite good, and the, the the calories in a pound of hava. I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's 
exactly. I used to not know. for the faint of heart. It's it not for the, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I had that, I believe I had, uh, budgeted two, uh, rain, uh, it's a combination of reindeer and pork sausage. So I had two of those, um, budgeted for each 12 hours. So I had, uh, eight of those total. We, uh, had, um, freeze dried dinners also for the potential times that we stopped because, because to, one of the big things on that route was figuring out how to manage the hydration strategies. And so the, the, the idea at that time for us was, um, was for, for each guy, for every prior to starting the route, we're going to load basically as much as we can eat as hydrated as we possibly can. So we're going to try and get down over the course of say three or four hours prior to starting up. We're going to try and every guy's going to try and get in like two or three liters. And then we're going to start each 12 hour block. And because we, we had with a long urination. Yes. Yeah. You need to have zippers in one piece suit for sure. Um, uh, uh, so we would start like drink three, carry three was, was the idea because, um, for each 12 hour block. And then at the end of 12 hours, that's when we, you know, we, we, we would resign ourselves to wherever we were, you know, basically you run out of, we, as soon as we were out of water for a certain amount of time, we needed to stop, get it, break out the two stoves and melt enough fuel to do the same thing again, to over the course of melting enough snow to each drink three liters and then put three liters in each of our water bags that we would carry for the next 12 hour block. Um, and, and then consume food at this, you know, sort of at the, at, at the same time. So when we say nonstop, it's not continuous movement all the time, but we're not sleeping because the only, uh, it is Alaska, it's cold. Um, and each of us, basically the only extra, you know, insulation we took was a puffy coat for each guy, and a spare pair of mittens. Um, so it was like, we started up that route with, um, with 53 pounds, uh, between the three of us. And 18 of that was water. Wow. So there was, we were cutting things no, quite. No novels. But no. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah. And so, so there was, um, and it, with the freeze dried food, you know, I had like basically three or four ounces of, of olive oil, you know, budgeted for each thing because another, what it's a, a tablespoon of olive oil, basically a hundred calories, I think something like that. Um, and, and so I'm just looking at maximizing the, the calories, but then also using the carbohydrate gel, not only to sort of, you know, because the fat burns in the carbohydrate flame or whatever, but, uh, you know, another way of manipulation. And, and this is, you know, there've been some sort of, uh, anecdotal things. And I don't know if this is covered in the, you know, sort of actual rigorous science that, um, you know, apart from the sort of the carbohydrate swishing idea, reducing perceived effort. But if I'm now I'm taking, I'm getting a hundred calories from the gel, but that, but that sensation is also putting my brain in a better state. Well, then it's a smart strategy. And I think, I think it is. I think that the science would bear you out on that. So, so there's, there's that. And then also if I'm, if I am, uh, continually sending the signal to my brain that there is no famine, (laughs) then my body will release more of its stored resources into the fuel pool, if you will, than it would um, if I didn't eat, you know, for six or 12 hours. And just to jump in, uh, the, 
so in the hydration literature, there's this debate of like, how do we how do we decide when we're thirsty? Is it what's in your stomach? Is it what's going down your throat? And they do these studies with like letting you drink but sucking it out, sucking the fluid out with a nasogastric tube, and okay. uh, or or in, or just putting the fluid in your stomach in your stomach with, through the tube without letting you swallow. And it's all you know. It's kind of a, is it this or is it that? And the answer is it's both. So I think at least to me the answer is it's both. And so with the food thing that you're talking about, it's like. Yeah, you, you you can't fool your your body for forever for long. But, yeah. but but if you if your if your brain feels it's like it's just like the thing of you're thirsty, you take a swig of water that quenches your thirst to some degree in a misleading way that you're not actually rehydrated. And and same with food, you can you can take the edge off with with some food. And so I think there's real performance effects to that. So if you're taking a gel every hour, you're doing exactly what you said, and it's not going to. Rep- place the fact the, that you're that you're in caloric deficit in that hour yeah it's, yeah. it's not and, and it's not you so you're you're going to be lo- you, you, it, it's 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 a question about stemming the the rate your rate of decline and not yes. about actually staying the same but, but i think that that logic makes you know good sense it this the, the, for me that idea actually started there was um uh, i was having a, comment, was a long time ago had a conversation with uh yvonne chenard about um uh you know, cold weather and how to eat for it. And they had, he and Rick Ridgeway and a couple other guys, they had come, they'd been in Antarctica and, you know, cold, crazy. And they'd gone up and I think it was the day that they'd summited Mount Vincent. They'd been out all day and calorically deprived and this and that, and just got back to their tent and were super cold. And Chenard said, yeah, I basically took, you know, drank a shot glass of olive oil and within five minutes I was warm. Wow. So, it's it's like the pickle juice for the cramps sort of thing. It's there's no time for for for, for that fat to have like, I, I mean it's barely reached the stomach at that point. Yeah. But my original thinking hypothesis was like, oh that's really, that makes no sense unless that signal in the mouth has you know. Uh, uh, allowed given the body permission to release stored fat um to 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 burn because now there's more on the way whereas maybe he just didn't eat for the previous six or eight hours and the body was like ah you know we're not we're gonna hang on to this because apparently the world's coming to an end and we want to be the last people standing this was the way i looked at it and i don't know again if it's rigorous science but it was it was whether it's placebo or whatever it was enough for me to yeah, I, I, that's it. You know, like I don't know of any studies that have looked at that, but it, it kind of makes sense. I, I'd love to see someone try it because it, or, you know, try it in the lab because just like the carbohydrate thing, which no one had ever tested until 2004. Like the rinse. The rinse, yeah. The, the, the sort of idea of anticipatory signaling and sort of your brain knowing what's going down the, the pipes. Hey, it, you know, it, it could be. The key thing is that it worked for you, but the, the you know, it would be interesting if it, it can be validated in the lab that it's something that people should really be aware of uh, uh, you know as a strategy and and uh um and, and because and because shots of olive oil are so so pleasant oh <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I think that like the turkey baster is probably the better <laughs> like, way of applying that than trying to dr- actual drink a, a shot glass but on a um it would have been sort of 1990 time 91 winter of 90 uh 90, I went to Russia in the winter, and, and uh, one of the things I was thinking, okay, we got to take a lot of calories and fat because it's going to be super cold. And so it, I, 
I took we, we took a gallon of olive oil with us <laughs> and it was basically gone in the first 10 days oh man um and at, at, at which point you know when we first got to base camp at eight uh uh, Russians uh, with us and they'd been a couple of them had been out to the Tian Shan in the winter the previous winter um, to try and climb Peak Victory and and you know of, I, I think there were 12 of them and uh, on that trip and eight of them came back with frostbite of some kind and this wow. and, and this time these guys were like now nah, it's not gonna happen this time we have better strategies and this and that and so one of the things they uh, they had carried with them uh, flown in because we'd fly into this uh, Camp below Cantangria with a in, in a helicopter because it's two hundred kilometers or whatever to the nearest village, and uh, and so we we landed and you know we're thinking ah we are we're like nutrition savants because we have olive oil and 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 they busted out these bricks of lard, uh-huh. and so I'm looking at that you know week one, completely judgmental about you know this is 1991 remember so yeah. completely judgmental about saturated fat and how bad it is for you and there's no way i would ever eat that like two days after the olive oil runs out i'm like alexi uh can i put some of that lard on my uh <laughs> you know my and and from then on i was just a lard eating fool because it was minus 27 average temperature in base camp for four weeks and the uh-huh. lowest we saw was like minus 60 something and uh and those kind of temperatures, you're, if, if if you're on a pure carb diet, you're dead. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, yeah. <laughs> so lard, lard and olive oil. It, do, it does remind, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten I had my own olive oil experience uh, backpacking in, in uh, northern Alberta with, uh, it was my third date with the woman who became my wife. And we, we went, were supposed to go out for, I think, like eight days, but it was great. And we were having fun, so we just stayed out for an extra couple of days and got right down to, it's you a, know, hike, hiking out with literally with no food left. Not, not a crumb, like... Uh, we found it, there was a shelter, there was a ranger shelter. It was an unmanned area, like not a park, but there was a ranger shelter where a few people had left like, you know, half a thing of peanut butter and, and some pasta. So that extended us. But then the, our, our last emergency resource, we had a jar of olive oil and we had some like powdered dehydrated soup and we had dehyd- dehydrated soy protein nuggets. Oh, goodness. Which were yeah. possibly the, but I just remember sitting there eating this soup of like 50% olive oil, 50% like salty soup powder with these unbelievably bad uh, soy like nuggets, but so hungry that I was just like more, 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 more. And we, we cleaned out the olive oil. There was no olive oil left when we came out. And, and, and it's, at some point, it just doesn't matter anymore. You yeah. get hungry enough, and, and all sort of food prejudice and theory goes out yeah. the window. <laughs> you hike 8 to 10 hours a day for, for, for 12 days, you know, carrying 70 pounds, then, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it doesn't matter what you eat, and it's not just that you're willing to eat it. It's all good for you. You know, if you work hard, hard enough, it doesn't matter. Um, something that... Uh, I mean, br- briefly touched on is this this conference. So we've been at the Santa Fe Institute, um, and I, I, I'll get the, the the title of the conference exactly wrong, but basically it's you know the the the, the limits of human performance. Let's see the influence of. Let's go with the influence of collective effects. It was the limits of human performance and the influence of collective effects, effects on, on individual, individual and collective performance and collective performance. So how does being uh, on a team make both you and the team better? Yeah, and and it tr- this triggered um, a, a lot of incredible conversations. There 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 was there were there were many sort of um, 
much of the okay virtually all of the physics presentations just left me and i got dropped in the first sentence on many of those and and then when the equations you know trying to quantify certain things and okay this is how we study you know behavior in this type of collective it being a school of fish or or or, or goats or army ants or you know it you know a, a soccer team on the field or basketball i mean a lot of studies have been you know a lot of people have studied these things and 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 uh um, and, and then there were a couple of people who were from a bit more, uh, I mean, I always put myself in the practical category because I have a, a, a 100% non-science background, uh, uh, in, in, in this, but, but, but some of these conversations were, were, were quite interesting, uh, just in terms of, you know, making me examine, um, you know, the, the times when I have participated in a team of some kind or a group, and that could be, and that, that, that group might be you know, a group of me, a group of competitors uh, or people uh, that, that I'm actually racing against on, on, on the road, on the bike and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, I was a bit more interested in the, how, um, consciousness gets entrained in a group, uh, in, in a way. Uh, well, we, 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 we watched videos of swarms of ants and fish and things like that. And it was amazing, but you look at it, and, and as you pointed out, you think of a, a, a cycling peloton uh, where, you know, no, no one cyclist can see the whole peloton, but, but they all move as if the, there's some grand plan that's sort of cycling them around in a special way. And, and a really interesting thing there was like looking at these, uh, the, you know, some of these, you know, the, the flocks of birds and the schools of fish and seeing the, this relatively constant distance maintained between you know the, each of the individual you know component parts, um, in, in obviously this is not a purely visual thing, um, but the, but there was this consistency. And I thought you know it's true in the peloton at a professional level or a highly experienced level, there's a, a really consistent distance that is maintained you know between riders um, laterally uh, is what's visually most identifiable um to, no matter what the road does it twists it turns it goes up and down and if the group is big and guys are you know uh, are, are, are you know, racing and maintaining a you know consistent speed the distances between them like, okay well i guess we're animals yeah yeah and even yeah. though we're bike riding animals uh it, it, it's very similar to this other behavior yeah and you realize that it, yeah it, 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 there's a relatively small number of things you need to know uh, and, and they may be complicated and there may be these rules that become embedded within your head as you become experienced, but it's like, yeah, it's, that's what an ant does. That's what a fish does. That's what the, the goats do. <laughs> and, and, and this is a fun observation, but kind of unuseful for the, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, at least my, what I had in my head as a sort of stated objective for, you know, some kind of outcome on this, uh, which would, would be to. And, and, and I guess that you know the, the brief presentation that I gave this morning had to do a little bit with team dynamics and 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 how um, okay when I've had good climbing partners um, my like I mean if we just go I was hypothesizing today that the team of three in the alpine environment is is the, is ideal for a variety of reasons um, because there is no sort of very little increase in in, in weight requirement uh, uh, for for three guys over two. Um, the, the, the distribution of stress and risk is enormous. 
yeah. um, is an enormous piece of it. Like if I'm by myself, I carry all of that myself. I'm with two that's shared half and half, you know, hypothetically, and with three, it, everybody gets a less. And 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 that's exactly the, where we saw the parallel between your world and, and my world, as it were, it, it, that, or at least between, yeah, climbing a mountain and say running a marathon where you're, you're not taking on risk of death, but you're taking on a cognitive burden, which people don't appreciate to pace yourself and to, to undertake, not just to pace yourself in the sense of judge how fast to go, but to undertake this process of pushing into, uh, an area of discomfort that is, that is scary on some level and, and full of uncertainty as to whether you can do it. And you're, you're making this choice. And and so can you distribute the cognitive load? Uh, which is exactly what you said. So I, I felt like a real sort of uh, connection there between those two worlds. It was, and during your present, and the, 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 when you presented it, and I was looking at this idea of, um, okay, in, 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 in running uh, or in cycling or whatever, there's, there's an idea of sort of aerodynamic drafting. But if people don't, you know, select for that or they're off the front perhaps, um, then this, this, that doesn't, sort of help, but you brought up this concept of um, cognitive drafting, which for sure applies in the mountains, but uh, it, specific to sort of the, the running thing is that um, some of the, the slides were, were showing that, you know, during the Nike uh, 2. Well, or, during, yeah. so during, the, the, during Nike's Breaking 2 marathon, they, they were very careful to make sure that the runners were lined up aerodynamically. And so there was, that sparked a lot of talk as to, oh, how big is the aerodynamic effect? And that made me look back at the last four world records okay. to say, okay, we always have pacers and marathons. What, what effect do they have? It's like, oh, then you look in mid-race and it's like, there's the three or the five pacemakers and there's the guy who set the world record. He's running off to the side or, or somewhere behind where he's not getting it's, any aerodynamic benefit. Yeah. But of course, if you asked him, are those pacemakers useful? He'd say, yeah, of course, I can't run this race without pacemakers. So what is it that pacemakers give you? And so that's what made me think of this idea of cognitive drafting. And there's a bunch of different things that could be going on. But, you know, if there's three people going up a mountain or let's say running a marathon, if there's three people running a marathon, one person sets the pace, two people don't have to think about it and just say, I'm just going to stay on this guy's back. And then they can switch. You, know, you can have a paid pacemaker who goes the, sure. uh, whose job it is, or you can you can have three competitors, three enemies. Yeah, I mean, in, in the context of cycling, let's say you could you, you could have that, but but there the, the aerodynamic draft is way more. Yeah, so in yeah. cycling, it, it gets muddied because the aerodynamics is there. But th- there's a paper I wrote about that just that was published a couple months ago where they're like, why is it so crucial for Chris Broom to have domestiques in Going mountain uphill. stages? At a, at, at a rate of speed where there is no aerodynamic advantage necessarily from having the guy in front of him. Yeah, and so they, they did a test with and without pacemaker up a pretty steep slope, seven and a bit percent, uh, which, which is like kind of Mont Ventoux-esque. And they found, yeah, there is some aerodynamic benefit, but the, the, with the, the cyclists, and these were pro cyclists, got about 4% faster. And, and, that was, and half of that was aerodynamic, but the other half was the, the, the mystery sauce. Uh, which which is where this sort of idea is, and and I should say like the cognitive drafting, the idea of sharing the the load, that's one thing. There's these other things we got into a little bit too, like the social bonding, the the idea that you're with teammates and you, you maybe you feel safe enough to push deeper into your limits. Maybe you just you're tapping into some sort of 
deeply rooted uh, sort of brain chemistry that, uh, and there is some interesting evidence showing that, uh, you know, when you do something with teammates, you get different brain chemicals than when you do the exact same thing on your own and the, the things like endorphins that may be helpful. So, so uh, you know, we don't, we don't know any of the answers, but I think it's, it's clear to anyone who has ever done these things that there is some alchemy that happens as part of a group, especially, I think, a group that's, um, you know, tightly knit or that you have social connections with. And, and, and oriented or aligned with the same objective. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think also one, one thing that came up in the discussion was the, the, um, the, the, the idea that if, if I have the, 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 the pacemaker, then that um, frees me from having to sort of monitor my own pace. And always on the front, you're, there, there's always this conversation of your, in your head. Am I going hard enough? Am I going too, too hard? How do I feel? And, and there's this sort of conversational or this you know, looping dialogue that happens um, where you're spending a lot of cognitive energy managing your pace. And if you're with someone, even if there's no aerodynamic benefit, but they are managing the pace, okay, that's their cognitive load. And Yours is lighter. Yeah, and it goes, so there's been some recent work by a guy named Noel Brick, who's in, in Northern Ireland, on attentional focus in endurance tasks. So, and he's done some, this is a hard thing to study because we don't know how to read minds yet, but he, you know, he does experiments and then tries to do an interview process right away to try and get a sense of what people were thinking. And what he's find is, found is, if you're on your own and you're setting your own pace, like you said, you have to do a lot of self-regulation. And it's not just that that takes cognitive energy it also means that you're very in tune with how you're feeling because to pace yourself you have to really be paying attention to how you're feeling and you know as i said today or yesterday if you're in the middle of a race or something of that nature and you pose yourself the question how am i feeling the answer is always pretty damn crappy <laughs> pretty and, and, damn and, and, yeah. and, and so if you're constantly dwelling on this you're, you're getting a sort of maybe an exaggerated sense of how miserable you are and if you can change from internal to external attentional focus, then independent of the actual cognitive load, you're also thinking about something different. And, and so you're thinking about, well, you could be thinking about lots of things, but you're focusing not on how you feel, but how close am I to my teammate in front of me. And so you're no longer thinking about how hard it is. Um, so just being able to... So you're sort of re replacing what would be a more costly line of thought. Yeah, or, 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 or just a more negative. It's like... Okay, okay sure, yeah. That, that you're... In, independent of the cost, if you're evaluating, can I maintain this pace? And and the most recent thoughts in your head are, this is crappy. Yes, you feel crappy. This is bad. Your legs hurt. Your lungs hurt. Then you're more likely to conclude on a very quick subconscious level, I guess I better slow down. Then if your last thoughts are, I need to stay with this guy. I'm with this guy. I'm with this guy. Can I maintain it? Yeah, I can stay with this guy. And I guess today I'd um, sort of discuss the idea of uh, of that, of, of me, of being around teammates and, and the, the, their energetic momentum or the, the ability to maintain a more positive attitude with a team, team of three is greater than a team of two and way different than by myself. Because if, if I, you know, if I'm on my, when I climbed alone a fair amount and I would start, you know, especially if it's fear sensation or fatigue or whatever, um, it, it, it's easy to circle the drain and, and, and really hard to stop that cycle once it, once, once it begins with two guys. Yeah. It's a bit better because there's some, you know, some conversation that can happen and maybe somebody's a bit more psyched. And this is always the case with Scott and I, he is 
always the more positive guy, and I was always the what I considered the voice of reason, which he thought was sometimes <laughs> negative. Um, it, it, but but due to his sort of overpowering personality at times, we were you know carried by that positive energy, and certainly with and, and with three. Man, if you're the guy with a negative attitude and versus two guys with positive attitude, you get positive in a in a in a hurry, just entrained by their uh, their thinking. So um, I, I could certainly see that also in in running. Um, that you know, just the presence of somebody else, and especially if it's a friend performing at a really high level, is going to give you more positive outlook. I think. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's there's uh, there's also like, so if I was at the bottom of a mountain pondering whether I could climb it. I think inevitably I think this is crazy. But if there's two other people there or five other people or more other people, it's like, well, it can't be that crazy because there's other people who are Because I'm not by myself. Yeah. And, and in, in running, there's a similar thing. It's like, if you're out, if you're out at a given pace, if you're the only one out there, then you know, everyone's looking at you thinking, what's this moron doing? Uh, if you're, if you're with a group of three, it's like, oh, those guys are making a breakaway. And if you're with a group of three or five or whatever, and those are the guys you've trained with. You're like, I know I can stay with these guys because I've trained with them. Tra- I know their attributes. Yeah, yeah. and I, and so so there's there's some sort of transferable transferable belief, and I think that's, you know, an underappreciated ingredient in the Kenyan running running phenomenon, okay. w- which is that, you know, it's one thing to talk about belief, but if your cousin, you know, was an Olympic marathoner, and 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 your you know your friend from high school is winning a thousand dollars or, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year in road races. And you're like, why not me? I can run at the front too. I know, I know these guys. So and, I, and I know these guys and I knew them in school and I raced against them. Then, yeah. So yeah. I could also have this. Everybody in those running hotbeds is connected through like less than, you know, two degrees of separation with someone who's like a world-class athlete. And so why wouldn't you think that you can do it too? And of course, and, 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 and just, just to, to sort of emphasize that it's not just therefore, since they believe it, they achieve it. They believe it, so then they go train like absolute maniacs for a few years because they, they expect that the payoff is worthwhile. So it, it, it's the belief that affects the actions and then creates the outcome, not just that the belief is, is, is the magic syrup. So fake it until you make it is not really a thing. Well, well, fake well, it till you make it as long as, uh, as as long as you're faking the practice too. Yes, as long <laughs> yeah, as you're yeah, doing yeah. the work. Yeah, yeah. You, you can. And, and, yeah, you and, can't and, just fake the belief and then have the uh, have the achievement. Yeah, I mean, and then there are some circumstances where just you know believing in yourself is is super super important. But it's yes. like it's not a it's not a substitute. And, but but I mean, there's lots of stories of guys in Kenya who who you know were nobodies and just kind of running with the big boys training, and you know two years later, three years later, like oh that guy can keep up now. And let's send him overseas and he'll win some races. I've been, uh, because, uh, Selena is a runner and, 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 uh, has sort of, you know, um, invited me to watch a lot of running events, you know, on flow aren't, track. Aren't you lucky? Kind of thing. Um, <laughs> actually I, I, I do feel lucky, um, generally because she, you know, I only get to see the, I only get to see the good stuff. She'll, and, and she'll she, go through it all and then she'll sort of select the things that and, are. And, and yeah, she'll, and she'll know the characters and the, the backstories, which is like, I, I love running like more, more than anything, but if to watch a, let's say a marathon with, if you don't know anything about who's in it, yeah. it's like, it's meaningless. You don't know what the drama is. Yeah. And if, and her, I mean, she's just, you know, total glee. If Dibaba's running, then she's, you know, Selena's just totally psyched. Um, uh, but, but, but it has been really fascinating to watch some of the, some of it is, you know, the marathon strategy in, 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 in a way, but, um, uh, 
a lot of it is just I, I'm just like watching the you know lack of, or let's see I know there's interaction going on energetically between these three or four guys who are up front but no one's talking and no one's looking at each other but they're all right in this really similar groove and some uh, and a lot of times there's uh, radically different somatotypes that are at, you know performing at this level and and to you know to, to, to see um, that despite you know all of these differences that the outcome can be similar is uh, it, it, it's just a fascinating thing for me to have you know been ultimately been exposed to it's it, it's great to see and it's kind of like not to get too you know big picture meta but it's kind of like we're, we're all capable of feats of endurance we're not all capable of winning the olympics but it's like it's something that's in us and and uh, you know there's it's a great feeling right like it's it's oh goodness. To, to, yeah. to the the greatest feeling in the world is to discover what you can't do in a way to to, to have been there and then to to sort of tempt that limit and and i do feel like a lot of people don't get that experience of of actually really stretching themselves out and so watching a race like that where you're going to see people of from different places from different somatotypes like you said just pushing themselves to the limit it's like yeah that's that's cool to to be part of that world it's really neat and and to see um just and i would have to use nordic skiing as the main example of this to see people who are going so hard that there is, you know, there is an actual physical collapse up, up yeah. after the finish line. <laughs> oh, those Nordic skiers. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and sometimes, and you see it on, you know, on the bike as well. It's like guys go so hard that they get off the bike and they can't, you know, actually can't stand. They could still produce power on the bike, yeah. but standing and walking is, is just a, a too great of an ask in a, in, yeah. in a way. Um, to just sort of, you know, wind down um, and, and go back to that, like, meta thing that you're sort of avoiding and that the 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 idea and um i i will agree and i'm this is the closet optimist coming out of the closet here that we are all <laughs> capable of great feats of endurance great being in the context of our own individual condition um but the but the 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 big thing for me is to and you said is it's a great to find out what you can't do and i think you know, actually, instead of deciding that you can't go try, because I would hypothesize that 100% of the time, if you said I can't, but then you went and tried, well, you were, your original hypothesis was, was wrong. Um, especially if you're in trained, if you're dragged along by other people performing and, and, and there's some, um, you know, just, and the, the, the presence of the group is one of the things that I mentioned today is, as being one of those, the, 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 the things that can help you, over, you know, break through um, self-imposed limitation. Because if, they're, they're here and they're doing it and they're human beings and they're my, maybe they're my friends or whatever, but there's other people doing this. Therefore I can do this. Um, and, and so it, it just starts it, that their presence in a way will shut down the conversation that was going on in your head of, do I quit? Do I not quit? Or whatever that might've been happening when you were, uh, you know, on your own. And, and, uh, so 
honestly, I, I, I would have to say, um, I'm not going to say that you can, because that's just a bit too positive, but I think you should try. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and, and view failure as, as okay, as long as you really failed and not just decided you were going to fail. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, learn the difference between can't and won't <laughs> by way of, uh, you know, drastic experience, let's say. I think that's a pretty good uh, mantra for life. Yeah. Um, Alex, thank you for, uh, for, for sitting down this, uh, despite having basically been, you know, having my brain overloaded for the last three days. This is, um, uh, this has been yeah, a fantastic conversation. Well, it's, it's been a ton of fun and, and yeah, we should, we should emphasize that we have truly performed a, a remarkable feat of endurance because we've each sat through, uh, about 18 hours of advanced, physics <laughs> and, and then we came straight here and and talked so uh have mercy on our on our mis misspeakings yeah and the things that we couldn't accurately remember because we were inundated with visions of uh, mathematical equations used to describe things <laughs> um so uh on twitter Sweat science. Sweat science is the place. Is the place. And, and, and that, that'll be the one thing that we mention. And you can, because if you get there, you can pull the threads and you'll find a lot of other uh, things that, that uh, Alex has been working on. And, and uh, th th thank you again. It was super cool. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>